So we're in the middle of a discussion, conversation about uh, that we have called If Then. If, oh, did you write that with like a real, no. It's about to carpe Blaine if he wrote that with like a legit marker, right? All right. So our conversation we're having is If Then. Uh, if one thing is true, then another thing should also be true. Uh, basic logic uh, that we can uh, begin to think through. So uh, what we're doing is we're trying to uh, understand our own life and our own story according to the story of God. Okay, So from Genesis to Revelation, 66 individual writings put together, to we call the Bible, uh, 66 writings, books, letters, uh, poetry, historical, um, uh, historical writings, all those put together uh, to make one Bible. Uh, but it's interesting that over 66 books and many different authors, uh, that when you look at this from beginning to end, even though it's got multiple uh, different uh, accounts of people, multiple different types of literature, it all forms one continuous story. And that's the story of God. Uh, and we have narrowed that down into four different parts. I didn't make this up. We're borrowing it uh, from those who have gone before us. The first part was creation. Uh, we looked at that in Genesis 1 in the beginning, God created. Then we looked at second part of this story is the fall or the fall into sin. That was Genesis 3 where man uh, just denied the simple instructions of God and decided to go their own way. Uh, this morning we're going to jump into our third part of the story, which is redemption. And then next week, when we're all together, uh, we will look at our final part of the story of God, restoration, where he makes all things new again. Okay? So here's the story of God. If you were to break down Genesis through Revelation into four simple bullet points, that would be it. Okay? So the question is that we're saying uh, we want to learn to see our own Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in light of those and in the middle of those as a part of that story. And then we want to see our life like that, and we want to say, if that's true, then how would that change the way I look at my life and how I, how I live my life? Uh, because just knowing things about God doesn't really change anything, but when what we know changes who we are and what we do, then that changes everything. So if these things are true, and if I'm a part of that story, then how would it change the way I look at my life and how I live my life? So that's what we're doing. This morning, we are on the bullet point of redemption. So it was shortly after our first, uh, I don't remember how long we'd been married, but I don't think we had kids. No, I know how long we have been married. But at the point that I'm referencing, I don't know how long we had been married. Um, we have been married for 13 years. But at that point, I don't know where we were in that 13 years. But I'm pretty sure we didn't have any kids. So it was in the first five years. Somewhere, we lived a block and a half down the road here. We lived. That would have been really convenient these days. Uh, but we lived right a block and a half down the road there. Uh, and I was at work. I was at work, uh, actually out of town for the day doing HVAC work. Um, strangely enough, I was at a hospital in DeWitt that day doing work at the hospital. Uh, and all of a sudden, I started having stomach pains, just like right around there. Um, and, and I remember laying in the hospital bed while I waited on my, my partner to get done with the job. Um, so I just knew something wasn't right, didn't feel right. I was hurting, I was uncomfortable, and it was pretty miserable. Um, so then by the time I got home, I think I'd already called Shelly, said, hey, coming home early, don't feel good. What's wrong with you? I don't know, but it just doesn't, it hurts and something's not right. And she's like, yeah, just relax, whatever. By the time Shelly was at work in Little Rock at this point, um, by the time I got home, I was laying in the fetal position in the floor trying to find a position for my body to which I could get relief. And there was none. There was none. I was in, I'd never been in pain like this. I've broke bones. I've had surgeries. I've done everything. And I've never been in this kind of pain. I would 
stick my rear end in the air, try to get comfortable. I'd lay flat, try to get comfortable. I'd lay sideways, try to get... There was nothing to where I could find relief. And Shelly's just like, eh, you can't tell me what's wrong. Uh, just, you're being a baby. You just need to whatever. And that's, she didn't like actually say that, but I knew she meant that, right? Um, and what up? <laughs> so uh, did you do something that requires ice last night? Okay, okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll tell that story here shortly. Anywho, um, so here we are. I'm laying in the floor, and Shelly doesn't think this is important enough to come home because I can't tell her what's wrong. And my mom works down the street, and she comes over to the house, finds me laying in the middle of the floor, and she takes me to the hospital. And then, like three hours later, Shelly meets me at the hospital, right? So th- there was something wrong. I couldn't identify. I couldn't tell what it was, but I knew that something wasn't right. And, and, and maybe if I could have told Shelly that my appendix was about to explode inside my body, she would have taken me serious. But I couldn't identify what the problem was. But I just knew something wasn't right. I almost died. My wife didn't really care. She just thought I needed to toughen up, Right? Um, but there's some times where you can't really identify or know what's not right, but you know something's not right, right? You tracking with me on that? So here we are in the middle of the story of God, and I got a question for you. What, what's not right, or let me rephrase that, When we look at the world that we live in, don't try to tell me what the cause is. Don't try to tell me it's your appendix. Just tell me, when you observe the world that we live in, how do you know something's just not right? What things do we observe that we're just like, I just don't think that's right. What things do we observe in the world we live in? Political correctness. The fact that you just have to... Well, I mean, there's a whole thing there. That's just not right. Blaine says political correctness. We could diagnose that from both ends. What else? You just look around the world and say, ah, just something's not right in the world we live in. What did you say? Park in the driveway and drive in the parkway. There you go. We don't know how to handle our language. Think about the news that you watch. And it's like, I know personally, I just get exhausted watching the news because when you watch the news, you're just like, this, something's not right with this world. It's all negative. So, so what in the news is negative? What do we see that we're like, that's not right. That's negative. What? Violence. Okay. What did you say, Shelly? Abuse. Okay. What else? Homelessness. Uh, let's just call that death of all kinds. Murder, suicide, all of the above. Uh, why has it been raining for the last... Two days? Hurricanes, just like nature. Something's slightly awry with nature that it would want to destroy us. Okay. People getting away with criminal acts. Okay, so in the criminal acts, you got guilty people getting away with it and innocent people getting blamed with it. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? You just look around the world and it's like, it's not right. Selflessness? Did I say selflessness? That's just not right when people are selfless like this. (laughs) I am so selfish. I just hate it when people are selfless. Uh, Selfishness. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I... Deaf in one ear and can't hear out the other, my dad says. Um, 
Right? So we can look around the world and we're just like, this place, I, you know, whether or not we... Here's the deal. In this, if we went around this room, better yet, if we went around this county and we asked people, what is the source... Right? It's me laying in the floor saying, I don't know what's wrong, but I know that something's wrong. And they say, well, tell me what's wrong. I don't really know, but I know that it's not right. If we went around our county and we asked people, what's the source? We'd get an infinite amount of answers. Uh, but we could all agree that something's just not right. Um, but then we get even closer... It's, it's, so here's, think about this. Uh, I read this in a book one time. I may be giving away one of my secrets here. Uh, but when you talk to groups of people, uh, you, can, you can make your way into their mind by doing this. You start by talking about what's wrong with the world. Then we could say what's wrong in your home. And then I could say what's wrong in your heart. And each time we get a little bit closer to home, and each time you kind of let your guard down, say, the world's not right. This place is jacked up. I easily agree with that. Okay, well, how do you see the evidence of that fleshing out in your home? How do you know something's just not right in your home? I mean, we're quick to agree with the world, but I think the same thing's true in our house. I'm going to tell you that the week we've had in our house has been really bad. I mean, I don't think Shelly and I talked for about three days, and that was my choice. Uh, and just, just one of those weeks, right, that if you would have come through our house, you would have been like, I don't know what's going on here, but there's just something's not right in the home this week. Right? So you're quick to answer this one. Let's be equally as quick to answer this one. How do we walk around our house and just say, you know what? This thing's not operating like I think it was made to operate. I know something's not quite right. How do we know that? Bitterness. Okay. What else? Okay. Um, not open. We hide things. I'm trying to think of the opposite way to the stuff. No. We, well, we hide, we hide what's in the heart. <laughs> we hide what's in the heart. Bad communication. bad. That's that's another way to say that. Bad communication. You got to watch me, Tony. I'm gonna. I was, you're gonna get blamed for something that was not that you, huh? Loss of empathy. We just don't care about others sometimes. Yeah. All right. Um, so I mean, we can we can look in our house and realize that something's not right with the world. Oh, we don't. We can look outside. We can watch the news and say this place is jacked up. But we can also look at our dinner table and say this place is jacked up. But then we look in our heart and we say the same thing. Something's not quite right because if you knew the things that are in my mind and go through my heart, you would say the same thing about me that you say about the world. And if, if you want to disagree with that statement for yourself, you're a liar. You're just as jacked up as I am, and I know it for a fact. You can hide it, or you can not say it out loud, but it's true. We're all equally messed up, okay? Uh, so here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh, we all have an if-then statement for these. We all have an if-then statement. If my wife showed more empathy to me, I would be less bitter to her. Right? If my neighbor was less selfish, then I would show more empathy if uh, if my wife was not hiding what's in her heart, then I could communicate better too. 
There's if-then statements all across the place, right? If-then statements all across. What if your husband, your wife, your money, your neighborhood, your job, what if none of that was the problem? What if, in this whole thing right here, what if, you know, when we go to that if-then statement, if my job was better, then I would be happy. If my job paid more, then I would be generous. Right? We could go on like this forever. If my wife, if my job, if my income, if my paycheck, if my neighbor, if my, if my, if my... What if none of that were the problem? It's impossible to put somebody else or something else as the problem. What if that was the case? Number one, if your wife, your husband, your neighbor, your job, if none of that's the problem, then how they respond cannot be the solution. If you blame somebody else for your lack of empathy or your lack of communication, but that somebody else cannot be the problem, then they cannot be the solution either. Okay? If you blame your communication skills on your wife's attitude, then even when your wife has a better attitude, you're probably not a better communicator. She's not the problem. So she cannot be the solution. My lack of contentment because of my low paycheck, if I made more money, if, if, that cannot, if more money cannot be the solution to contentment, then more money is not the problem. If it can't be the problem, it can't be the solution. If I'm, I heard it said the other day, if you're not content with what you have, you wouldn't be content with what you wanted. If it's not the problem, then it cannot be the solution. Um... Something else must be the cause. And that's what we want to look at this morning. If that's the case, if all that's true, something else must be the cause. We looked at creation, and in creation all things were made, and it was what? Good. Seven times, I believe it was, in Genesis 1, God said, it's good. But then three chapters later, in Genesis chapter 3, it's no longer good. And it's not God's fault, but it's man's fault. He gave simple instructions. He put us in his good creation. And he said, work it, enjoy it, do well. And Satan comes in and says, did God really say not to do that? And we're like, sure he did. God's hiding something from us. So let's go see what God's hiding for us. Let's disobey him, pursue what he has not given us, and see what happens. And the result is we know good from evil no longer good. But we live in a world that's evil. There's something not quite right about it. Okay? Something not quite right about it. Uh, so in three chapters, we went from good to fear, shame, guilt, pain, hostility, war, unmet desires, unhealthy marriage, blame, blisters, blood, sweat, jobs we hate and disconnected from God and the result is death. In three chapters we went from good to there. What was the problem? Huh? Pride? What do we call that? Sin. Sin. Now there's all different kinds of sin. Pride. Jealousy. It fleshes out in a lot of different ways. But the reason that we went from good to not good is sin. That's the story of God that fleshes out in the Scriptures. And he says that's the problem. That is the single problem. Uh, it wasn't the husband. It wasn't the job. It wasn't the house you lived in. It wasn't your neighbor. It was sin. That was the problem. Um, 
So if sin is the problem, let's, let's create an if-then statement before we jump into Isaiah 53. If sin, then what? Right? If sin is the problem, then what's, what's some of our first responses to that being the reality? Then I quit blaming Shelly. If sin is the problem, then I, then what, right? If sin's the problem, then I quit looking to money to fix it. I quit. You know, there, there's a whole host of things that everything I was blaming before for all the things that aren't quite right right now, then then there's a, a result to quit blaming those things and start looking to sin as the problem and not my neighbor, my job, my whatever. There's a huge reality shift in that right there. So what's the solution? What can get rid of fear? What can get rid of shame? What can remove guilt? What can heal pain? What can create a healthy marriage? What can give satisfaction in my work? What can connect me to God? And what can give me life? If sin takes away all those things, what gives all those things back? That's the question. Money doesn't give it back. My wife doesn't give it back. My neighborhood doesn't give it back. My credit cards don't give it back. My income doesn't give it back. If sin takes it all away, guilt and and creates guilt, shame, fear, death, separates me from God, makes me hide things, makes my, my marriage miserable, makes my job miserable, then what gives all these things back? What removes the shame, the fear, the guilt, makes marriage better, makes me satisfied in my job? What is the single solution to all these things? Welcome back, put back together the broken pieces. Genesis 3.15, we hit on this a couple weeks ago, promises that Eve would have an offspring that would crush Satan's head. Right? The serpent came to Eve and deceived her. And the Bible lets us know that that was Satan telling her lies so that she would turn away from God and follow him. And then in, in, in the midst of all things coming unraveled, he says that she will have an offspring that will crush his head. Crush him. First time in scriptures we see that there is going to be redemption for the fall that has happened. In Genesis 3.15. Isaiah 53, jump with me there. Isaiah 53 is a deeper, more detailed picture of the redemption that is coming. God created, it was good. Man rebelled, it's no longer good. But there's a promise that all things will be redeemed. We are now taken captive by death, by disease, by all the things that we said are not good. But If you remember a couple months ago, we defined redemption as a ransom that's being paid to set you free. What is the redemption that God has promised? He said it in Genesis 3.15, and he gives us... So Isaiah 53. Isaiah was a prophet. That meant he was a spokesman for God. God told him what to say, and he communicated for God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he communicated for God before the written word existed. Right? So in Isaiah 53, keep in mind a little context, 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is speaking right, right here, what we're about to read. 700 years before Christ, he is speaking. Israel is waiting on this redemption. They're waiting on the Messiah, the anointed one to come. And here we have 700 B.C., Isaiah gives us a picture of the redemption that is coming. Keep in mind the four questions that I'm going to ask as we go through this. According to this passage, who is God? 
What has he done? Who are we, if this is true? And then what do we do about it? How do we live this out? Four questions. So I actually start in 52, verse 13 with me. My servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed? What, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, didn't have in, he did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of the oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living and was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but, but, was, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence, and he had, spoke, he had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering... He will see his seed and will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. And he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. 700 years before Christ, one quick question, who is Isaiah talking about? Hmm? Jesus. Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was ever on the scene, he painted this picture as if it was past tense. He saw it. He wrote it. He communicated it. Now we read it as evidence that the promise of redemption has always been the plan. Jesus was not uh, some new made up concept, but he was the fulfillment of God's promised redemption that was coming. So four questions for you. According to this passage, who is God? And this one's a little bit trickier and has less answers, I think, than the ones we've previously done. According to this passage, who is God? Okay. What did you say? Redeemer. How, how else would you say punisher? Who has the authority to punish? Judge. That's... That's the word that came to mind when I asked myself this question. God's a judge. He's the one who brings punishment. He's also the one that says not guilty. Right? But a judge. That was really the, the main answer. But does anybody else have any answers that I didn't think of as we read through this?
but he is a judge. What is the... Huh? Gives hope. Okay, that's something that he does. Right now we just want to ask the question of who he is, though. That'll be the second question, so hang on to that. Jesus. Okay, he says he is... Well, that gets in the second question, too. No, no. But judge, what, what kind of emotions or thoughts does like judge bring to mind for you? They okay, they know right and wrong. They know the law. Stern. Like so if I told you you're gonna go stand before the judge tomorrow and he's gonna determine your fate, whether you're guilty or not guilty, and he's the one that's deciding. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Okay. In a perfect situation, a judge would be fair. Okay. So that's who he is here. He, he presents himself as the judge who has the ability to condemn or to set free in this moment. So Isaiah calls describes God to be. So now, what has he done? We started to get into that. But what has God done in this passage? Okay, so he provides that Redeemer, the, the ransom to... set us free, right? He's providing a ransom or a redeemer. What else? There are so many like direct statements to tell what he has done in here. Uh, What has he done? I mean, just look at verse 4. He carried our sorrow. Okay? What else? He was beaten for us. He's proven that he's... Yeah. Okay. Uh, he has proven... To have a plan. He has brought us peace. He was pierced because I rebelled. Uh, to what? Death. Willingly took death. He did what? He was denied of his own people for us. Yeah. So he was in the midst of doing all this, he was denied or rejected even by his own people. Uh, interceded for us. That means he went to God on our behalf. 
He was God, but yet he, he also revealed himself. Revealed himself in a servant form. So here God says that he has revealed himself, made himself known through this servant that he's talking about. 700 years later, we know that servant is Jesus, but here they just know him as the anointed Messiah who's coming. What did you just say, Shelley? Was oppressed. He justifies many. That means that as the punisher and judge, he justifies, he makes them right, not guilty. They are guilty because uh, we had rebelled. But in justifying many, he declares them to be not guilty. Not because he's a corrupt judge, but because that servant takes their guilt upon himself. But he also lived sinless life. It said that there was no guilt in him, but he died as one who was guilty said that he himself was not guilty, but he died as if he was. And in that, Jesus justifies many, the servant who died the death of a rebel because we had rebelled. He intercedes for rebel, bore our sins, submits to death, justifies many, became a sacrifice for sinners. The list is so long in this passage to see what God has done for us. Right? So long to see what God has done for us. And why has He done this? But go back to the root of the problem. Isn't this so weird that that when we look in the world and we say something's not right, and then we begin scrambling to make all those individual things right by accounting for the, uh, the, the things that we see. It's like, it's like treating a disease by treating um, the symptoms. Sometimes words just escape my brain, right? But it's like treating a disease by treating the symptoms. That's how we look at the world. But God says... I know for a fact that your wife is not the problem, so I'm not going to fix your wife. I'm going to fix sin because sin is the root of the problem that causes all these other things to unravel. And this is why he provides a ransom. He carries our sorrows. He was beaten for us. He's proven to have a plan. He's brought us peace by uh, living sinless and becoming a sacrifice, therefore justifying many, revealing himself in this servant form in order to intercede on our behalf. He endured rejection of his own people so that we might become his people. We see that he, God, in his infinite wisdom, knows that the symptoms are not the problem. Your fear is not the problem. Your anxiety is not the problem. Sin is the problem that causes the symptoms that we see. And that's why he attacks it at the root by sending a suffering servant who becomes a ransom for many. We see that here. So who are we in light of all this? What does this say about our own identity? Okay, this says that we, okay, I'm going to change all these statements to I have worth, because each one of these are true for each one of us as individuals, not just collectively, okay? What else? 
So some of these, you can just take them and flip into an identity statement. I am free from sorrows. Because he carried them. He took them. Took them away. Who else does this say we are? If he was pierced because I am a rebel, then who am I now? I'm forgiven. I'm no longer guilty of rebellion, but forgiven. Right? If he was a sacrifice and took the death that I deserve, then who am I now? Redeemed. Huh? Oh, that's good. Yeah, so if he became a sacrifice that died in my place, then I am free to live for him who has died and risen again on my behalf. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That because he died and was risen again, I am now free to live for him who died for me. I can be a living sacrifice. He laid his, down, his life down once for everyone, and now I daily lay my life down for him. But I'm free to do that now. No longer fear of condemnation, sin, death, rebellion, but free to live in joy and peace that he provides because he carried my sorrows and took them away upon his own body hanging on a cross. So there's no longer I am no longer fearful of judgment because he was judge who set me free. Right? Last one. I am counted among the godly. <laughs> That's such a twist right there. Because everything over here says you are sorrowful, oppressed, you are guilty, you're a rebel, uh, you deserve to die. And then when he takes all those things on you, he says, now you are counted among the saints, the godly, the children of God. You are his spoils. You are his victory. You are what he receives because he gave this. It's like you're his prize. You're the spoils of the servant, the one who, you're, you're what he takes away from the war. Counted among the godly. None of this is true about you anymore. Because this is now who you are. Last question. If, then. So how do we create a statement to say, if he has done this for me, then it changes my life this way. So how do we create some if-then statements to conclude this time? Okay. If Jesus paid for my sin, stepped in and became a ransom for me, then sin no longer controls me. I won't let it. It's good. 
So what sin controls us? Just think about that. Greed? Uh, let me go back to my week. Make, makes a good example for me. Um, I have a lot of sin in my heart and in my week, so I, I can tell you about this. But if he became a ransom to pay for my sin, he also became a ransom to pay for my wife's sin. And the thing that just... Right? I got a lot of words, but we got a podcast and... Somebody might listen to that one day. But the thing that she did to me, or the thing that I think she did that was so wrong, or the thing that I think she just needs to move, whatever it is, if he became a ransom to purchase, to redeem, to take away that, and I'm free to live, then I'm also free to forgive and not condemn and hold her captive to what she's done this week. Right? Like, this doesn't go one way. It's not like, well, he did that for me, so now I'm free, but I'm going to put a thumb on you as long as you act that way. Right? That's what I do. That's not what this says. So I'm free to live from sin but also I'm free to let others fulfill that identity as well. What else? If I'm forgiven, then I'm free to forgive others. If he was pierced for my rebellion, I can quit piercing others for theirs. If he suffered for me, I can quit causing others to suffer for what they've done. If I'm free from sorrows, then what? Hmm. If you're really free from your sorrows because he carried them, then how would that change your week? Free to live in the joy. I'm free to offer joy to others. But what's the hindrance, right? What's the hindrance? If he carried our sorrows then what hinders us from living in joy? Just think about this. Go back to that tree that we drew a number of weeks ago. We think certain things about God when we are... It's just so... There's a lot of things that steal our joy through the week. Jesus said, I carried those things. The things that you're going through that just completely drain you, depress you, cause your anxiety, he said, I carried that. I did. I took that from you. And if you're keeping it right now, that's not my fault. Right? Because I took care of that. But you don't believe it. Maybe you did yesterday, but today, today you're carrying it again. You don't believe that I took care of that, right? And so there's some, it's a belief problem that we have. And we think that we have to handle this. We have to take care of this. We've got to be in control of this. In the midst of that, you begin to carry your own sorrows again. Right. If I have worth, then what? Right there. This passage says, I have worth, I'm valuable. If that's true, then what? Value others. Value others. Quit beating myself up because I think I'm a screw up. I quit making comments about myself that are derogatory that just assume people, you know? Because if I make those comments about myself long enough, you know what I begin? begin? Begin to believe them. That's contrary to what God said about you. It's contrary to the way He feels about you. If I begin to make those comments about somebody else, 
as if they're worthless. They have no value. It's contrary to what God said about them, too. Boy, that's easy, isn't it? And they may have, like, actually done some junk that makes you actually dislike them. And you may have some legitimate reason to think you have a right to carry a grudge and devalue their life. That's why the gospel is so difficult for us to tangibly walk in that good news every day. Because even that was covered, even that was carried, and even they have value. If I have worth, I will value myself. And I'll value others as well. It's a lot in here. Isaiah 53, such an incredible encouragement to my faith. There was a season where I, I wrestled a lot. I believed, but then I, you lay in bed in the quiet of the night and say, is this really true? Right? And then when I found Isaiah 53, it encouraged my faith so incredibly that God would give a man named Isaiah a picture of Jesus so clear 700 years before it ever happened. I mean, just go read Isaiah 53 again and compare it to what it says at the end of the book of Matthew as Jesus carries his cross, dies in our place as he suffers, as he gets spit and bruised. Just compare what Isaiah says with what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John say. It's incredible. It's incredible. It erased so much doubt out of my life from this one chapter. So much doubt. And helped me to believe deeper. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness of our sins according to His riches of His grace. This is us. It's all who believe they get the right to become children of God. This is us. This is the gospel and this is the story of God and how it impacts our daily life. I want to pray for us and these guys are going to come close us in worship. Don't forget, if your family eats, our family eats as well. We could share lunch together if y'all had time. Uh, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we... I just pray that as we look at this and we look at the redemptive plan that you've had, you set it in motion before you ever created the world. Paul said in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world.